Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. Welcome back to another episode of History for Weirdos. What's going on, weirdos? Woohoo! We're very excited for episode number 49 for many reasons, but I'm obviously I'm excited to hear what you have to say, babe, but also because the next episode is our big 50th. I know, our 50th anniversary, not anniversary <laughs> episode. I always, Every time I say 50th episode, I always want to say anniversary. I... I can guarantee you there's no one who has a 50th podcasting anniversary right now. That is true. No one's been doing it for 50 years. Maybe 50 days, but okay, our 50 episode anniversary Mm -hmm. podcast episode. Yes, which is a big (laughs) milestone and it's because of you all who, you know, encourage our delusions as we sit here and talk about... (laughs) Some cool history or some, some weird cool, some cool history. Some cool weird history. So thank you very much. And we still have, I think, a few slots open for questions. So if you have any last minute questions, throw them our way and we'll add them to the list. Yes. And now, my love, what are you going to tell us about today? So without further ado, let's just get into this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, today, actually, I want to talk about the story of one of the most powerful women in the history of the Roman Empire. Ooh, that's exciting. Yes, and it's interesting because she was a Roman, but not a Roman. Oh. As, yeah, the, that distinction, get you know, as the Roman Empire kind of, you know, transpires and, you know, progresses, just gets more and more kind of muddied. Yes. Yeah, because it just becomes, a, you know, it's a multi-ethnic, transcontinental... Identity. Yeah, identity. Yeah. It's, it's very complicated, but... I'll try to, like, spruce it up and make it as clear-cut as possible. Okay, I'm excited. So, she fostered an intellectual environment in her court, which was open to scholars, philosophers, and was tolerant of religious minorities. Yay for tolerance! Yeah, so she was pretty, uh, that was pretty, you know, unique for most rulers at the time. I mean, tolerance was not a vibe (laughs) in the ancient world. (laughs) Yeah, typically, yeah, sometimes it was, typically not. Typically not. So, she rebelled... And became an empress in her own right. I like her already. Yeah. Her name was Zenobia, and she was the empress of the Palmyrene Empire. I've never heard of Zenobia or the Palmyrene. Yeah, uh, Palmyra. Palm, it's from the city of Palmyra or Palmyra. It doesn't really matter. But yeah, it was very short-lived, so it's understandable you haven't heard of it. Oh, I'm really intrigued. Yeah. So even to this day, she's considered a patriotic symbol in Syria. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Okay, so that's the region that we're in? Yeah, so okay. we're in, yeah, present day like Syria. Mm-hmm. So it's like the Eastern Mediterranean. Okay. So Julia Aurelia Zenobia was born and raised in Palmyra, Syria, in around 240 AD or CE. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say AD for the rest of this episode just because it's Latin and we're talking about Rome, so it kind of makes sense. Very appropriate. Just very cut to the chase. What a nice attention to detail. Right. <laughs> that I never would have noticed if you had switched back and forth or not. Yeah, you definitely wouldn't notice. No. 
So her early upbringing is pretty obscure. Mm-hmm. She most likely had some noble ancestry. Well, she definitely had some noble ancestry and was certainly highly educated, knowing Egyptian, Greek, Latin, Arabic, and Aramaic. Jeez Louise. So she was a smarty pants. Yeah. She claimed that she was a direct descendant of Cleopatra, but it is unknown if she meant the last pharaoh of Egypt, Cleopatra, or the much less well-known Cleopatra Thea. Oh, Still a big deal, just not like Cleopatra, Cleopatra. Right. This also means, though, if she was directly descendant of Cleopatra, she would also have been a direct descendant of Mark Antony as well. Very cool. So pretty cool. She was also related to uh, Severan dynasty rulers, not directly, but just like they shared. Yeah. Like I think she was directly descendant from either like their mother or like their grandfather, but she was um, related to Geta and Caracalla. Those are some pretty big names. Yeah, so some pretty big names. Again, not directly related, but also, but, you know, tangentially related. Also, she was tangentially related probably to Hannibal as well. Wow. So pretty crazy stuff. Impressive lineage for sure, but this isn't about who she's related to after all. Mm-hmm. Just where to set in the stage. Mm-hmm. So in around 255 AD, she married Septimius Odenathus of Palmyra as his second wife. She was around like 14, 15 at this time, by the way. Do you mean second wife as in his first wife had passed or he had two wives? No, his first wife had passed. Okay. But good. That's a good question, though. Mm-hmm. Um, Odinathus is an interesting figure in his own right. He essentially ruled the entire easternmost portion of the Roman Empire as a client king, ruling from the Black Sea in the north to modern-day Israel-Palestine in the south. Mm, yeah. Wow. So big, big swath of land. In fact, the Roman Senate gave him the title Corrector Totius Orientis, or Governor of the Entire East, after he had an impressive victory against the Persian Sassanid Empire. <laughs> they're like, you get the whole East, man. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we clearly cannot deal. This is also, by the way, I, I didn't put this in the notes, but I think it's important to notice. This is during a period of Roman history called the Crisis of the 3rd Century. And it's not really one crisis, it's just 50 years of cri- one crisis after another crisis. So, like, the time we're living in now. <laughs> we're going to yeah. have our own crisis after crisis. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Good times. Good times. Well, anyways, while Odenathus was in <laughs> campaign, Zenobia allegedly participated in campaigns along with him. It's hard to say for certain because the only primary source comes from the Historia Augusta, an ancient text that is just littered with inaccuracies. I have been privy to andrew's ramblings about how inaccurate this is (laughs) the historia augusta and how confusing it makes things it does it's just i think some guy was just winging it yeah honestly that's how i would have done it (laughs) just to piss off someone in the future right exactly um i included this though because it isn't outside the realm of possibility Mm -hmm. given how popular her future reign would be Mm-hmm. And when you say campaign, you mean military campaign? Military campaign, yes. Mm-hmm. Good distinction. It's also important to mention also at this point that she had two sons by Odinathus. Okay. And that she was also a stepmother to one of his sons from a prior marriage. Okay. So there's three, there's young, three kids. young kids. Yeah. The, and the oldest one is definitely probably like... Her age? Like her age. Ugh. Yeah. So gross. So gross. So here's when things really start to go down, though. Okay. 267 AD, Odinathus and his eldest son were assassinated by a cousin of his by the name of Myonius. The reason why 
completely unknown. What? We no idea. The cousin didn't get something immediately out of it? No, there was like according to the story of Augustus, he briefly ruled, but most modern historians are like, nah, that's there's no way. <gasps> Just because like of how quickly Zenobia was able to kind of garner support around herself. This is nuts. So maybe it was personal. It could have been personal. There's even like some people say Zenobia was behind it as well, but most people don't necessarily um, agree with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because, and the reason why is because it presented an opportunity for Zenobia. Like her son mm-hmm. um, was now technically the the next in line. Uh, his her older son, right? Because his his first son died too. Yeah, oh. and her son by the name is by the name of a Vabalathus. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Vabalathus. Yeah, terrible name. Jeez. I see why that one went out of fashion. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Zen- and while Zenobia became the queen regent to her son. Wow. So she technically never ruled in her own right and ruled on behalf of her son, but she was always the one pulling the strings. Like, it was her who was mm-hmm. ruling. And she and her son was just a figurehead. I mean, he was young at the time. So I was going to say. It makes sense. It was probably a child. So. Yeah. I mean, she was pretty young. I mean, two, and if she was born in like 240, that in 267, she's like 27 years old. Oh my God. Can you imagine that level of responsibility? No, I really can't. At 27 plus being a mom. Yeah, no. No, that's some Alexander stuff right there. Mm-hmm. So her early rule was consolidating power for her and, you know, nominally for her son. Mm-hmm. The Palmyre monarchy was brand new at this point. It was pretty much Odenathus was the only previous ruler. Okay. So all loyalty was really more towards Odenathus the man and not really to like Palmyra as the country or state. Right. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah. He was the only ruler. And, you know, her first main roadblock came from the Roman high court. Mm-hmm. And this is just where like ancient politics and ancient law kind of just like fascinates me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because Vabalathus ha- absolutely had legitimacy to his royal titles as they were hereditary. But he did not have any claim whatsoever to the Roman given titles, as those were not hereditary. Okay, that makes sense. Right, they're all appointed on behalf of the emperor. Yeah, but the, it's interesting that in their world the two exist coexisted. Exactly, like Romans could have client kings, right? Yeah, who were you know they technically ruled in their own right, but but ultimately on behalf of Rome and her interests. That's such an interesting approach. It is, yeah. I mean, that's all, That's honestly, I, I don't want to get into a tangent, but it's one of the reasons why Rome was as successful as it was. Is Do you think that's, this is a little bit of a tangent, but that's kind of like how the papacy maintained power. Kind of, like, yeah. It's like all of these kings all over Europe are the kings, but only because the pope says so kind of yeah right like the pope agrees they're backed by the church Mm -hmm. so it's like a roman tradition yeah it is yeah exactly (laughs) and the papacy obviously come from rome yeah wow some things don't change everyone some things don't change (laughs) yes i know the it's wild that the catholic church today is like Mm -hmm. it's from rome like it's from ancient rome Mm -hmm. nuts anyways uh totally lost my train of thought where (laughs) were we okay vabalathus yeah again Absolute legitimacy to his royal titles, not to his the Roman titles that were mm-hmm. given to his father. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, Zenobia not only gave her son the royal title King of Kings, 
which dates back God knows how long. Love it. But that of Corrector, which first put her in the crosshairs of Rome, as that was a Roman title. Okay. They were not stoked on her. And obviously, as you had stated earlier in the episode, she is someone who is politically aware because of her family, and she's well-educated, so she knew what she was doing. She knew exactly what she was doing. Okay. And, you know, however, really besides this, she assumed all of the lands that her husband had ruled over without too much of a fuss. Mm. Um, Rome was going through a lot. So, again, crisis <laughs> of the third century. So they were, like, maybe they might not have liked her at this point, but they were like, okay, we'll deal with you because you're still, like... Connected to the guy that we were all excited exactly. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they loved him. I mean, they gave him amazing titles. Like, he oversaw other... Like Roman prefects and Roman governors of like smaller little uh, provinces, mm, mm-hmm. he oversaw them all. So he was kind of like almost like a super governor slash a super governor, yes. like a governator, like a governor. I love it slash king. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, a lot of her early reign was not only obviously garnering support but fortifying the eastern border against the Persians, which. You know, the local Roman governors didn't necessarily dislike. So they're like, yeah, that absolutely. Right. That's what we want. And mm-hmm. in fact, and spe- maybe because of that and probably because of other things, there aren't any recorded attempts of them, like the local governors at the time, trying to overthrow her and generally accepted her and her son as the legitimate successor to Odenathus. Okay. Um, in 270, though, she made her first move into expansion. She sent an army under the command of her general, Septimius Zabdus, to Bostra, which was the capital of the Roman province of Arabia Petraea. Okay. Um, Her army absolutely routed the Roman army. Again, that's a huge feat in and of itself. Right. And she conquered the area of present-day Jordan and the northwestern portion of Saudi Arabia. Oh, my God. Yeah, and this is where it gets just kind of wild. Um, because of these victories, Vabalathus is now considered a Roman governor and commander. So, because he assumed the titles of, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this and try to do this in ancient Latin. Okay, the titles of <laughs> Vir, Vir Clarissimus Rex Consul Imperator Dux Romanorum. What? Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even gonna go. It's just, it just basically is like. Um, the one to con- like throw in there is yeah. there is Rex, which means king, consul, yeah. which is just a consul, yeah. dates back to like the Roman Republic, um, and imperator, which yeah. that would eventually become emperor. It didn't really mean that though in ancient times. It's just more like victorious general. Okay, it's like kind of the best. They're the best one. Dukes, uh-huh. D-U-X, would actually eventually become duke. Okay, that's yeah. so interesting. Like a duke and Romanorum, just Roman. So this is the son gets these titles because of his mom's victories? Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it's just, it's so confusing. (laughs) But just don't think about it too much. Just know that titles were just weird. And they're wild back in the day. Yeah, it sounds like it. So all of this, that he inherited all this while technically still being subordinate to the emperor in Rome. Mm -hmm. Very complicated affair. Mm Mm-hmm. The coup de grace comes later, though, when Zabdas invaded Egypt and conquered it for Zenobia and, you know, nominally for Vabalathus. Yes. It was particularly easy because Rome was going through a succession crisis, which took attention away from the province. Mm -hmm. You know, and at this point, Zenobia ruled over territory that covered the entire 
eastern Mediterranean coast from central Anatolia, northern Mesopotamia, the Levant, part of Arabia, the Sinai Peninsula, and now Egypt. Wow. So just a massive, I mean, it is an empire in its own right. Yeah, like, that is an empire. That is, right. It's massive. It would be absolutely massive by today's standards. I mean, there's most countries in that area aren't even nearly that big. Mm-hmm. So this was the high watermark of her empire. And now it's probably a good time to, you know, maybe take a step away from her conquering. Okay. To speak about, like, her leadership style and what was going on, like, in just the everyday, or I guess her, her court. Okay. Maybe not the everyday lives of people. We don't really know too much, but... Her everyday. Her everyday. So she saw an empire of Semitic peoples, Hellenistic ones, and many other ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. So very, very diverse. Mm -hmm. She was incredibly religiously tolerant and did not really favor any sort of particular religion or cult and allowed them all to exist, including Christians and Jewish folks. Wow. Yeah. Which was, I mean, everyone might be thinking, well, duh, but no, this time that's pretty... That's pretty rare. You yeah, and Christianity at this point is seen as a cult shoot-off of Judaism, right? Yes, that's mm-hmm. correct. Um, it's starting to gain a lot of popularity, but still, you know, it's... you'll still see a lot of, you know, later even Roman emperors still persecute Christians. Of course, because they were weird and they liked helping sick people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's weirdos. Poor people. <laughs> so she carefully crafted and projected an image of a Syrian monarch, mm-hmm. a Hellenistic queen, and a mm-hmm. Roman empress. So basically kind of covering all of her bases. Oh just being God. like this worldly like woman. And also... From a few descriptions I've seen, apparently she was also fairly attractive. That's so interesting when women garner a lot of power, they tend to say that. And I've seen cases, like a few where that's not true. Cleopatra's a really... Right. This is not me trying to diss Cleopatra, you guys. Like, <laughs> I swear. But just the way they describe her is so different than the images we have of her. I right. wonder if it's just their magnetism... Mm-hmm. And particularly that they're so they're such outliers, and that they're women, right? That people are like, oh yeah, she's beautiful. Like they need to ascribe some sort of like like feminine- physical attribute. Yes, yeah, yes. Which is so interesting. I wonder if she was. Yeah, I mean, you know, apparently the dis- the modern or not modern, sorry, the ancient descriptions of her, like so, like around the same time, mm-hmm. were fairly positive. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and they went into detail about like her dark hair and like, you know, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I didn't write it down in my notes, but I was just like, huh, funny. Yeah. No, it, it could be totally possible. I just think it's interesting that that's always the case. Right. And it's not always the truth. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So where was I? Oh yeah. So she's again, like, I, like I mentioned earlier, she surrounded herself with intellectuals and philosophers at court, you know, further maintaining that image, very cra- carefully crafted image of an enlightened monarch loved by the people. Yes. It sounds it's like she's important. very strategic. She was very strategic. And generally speaking, it seems like that was the case. So, in fact, Palmyra is becoming the biggest thought capital in the Mediterranean, even supplanting Athens for a very brief period of time. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. And that, like, Palmyra being so new and Athens being so old. Right, exactly. Exactly. Athens was incredibly old by this point. Um, you know, however... All good things must come to an end. No! (laughs) Oh, yes. And so remember that ascension crisis that Rome was having earlier on? Yeah. So, well, that's coming to a close now. Okay. And the winner of that little civil war was Mm -hmm. a Roman general 
by the name of Aurelianus, or just simply Aurelian. Oh, the dude that likes walls? Yes, the Aurelian walls. <laughs> so, this is a perfect... Sorry, not likes walls in, like, the Trump-Mexico <laughs> border way. No, I was I mean, making yeah. a joke about the Aurelian wall. Yeah, yeah it's a nerd joke. very beautiful. I've seen it <laughs> yeah. in person. And, and still stands to this day. And still Rome. stands to this day. <laughs> so, and this is just a perfect example in history where an exceptional leader like Zenobia no matter what she does, is still just eclipsed by someone possibly even more brilliant. Wow. Which is just, you know, you, you see this a few times in history. Another one that comes to mind is is like Pompey Magnus. Yeah. and But being eclipsed by Julius Caesar. Yeah. And there's one in in, uh, in Mesopotamian history. I don't, even, I don't even remember the guy's name, but he's eclipsed by Hammurabi. Or Hammurabi. That's so interesting when that happens to like, you're still so amazing and so exceptional right but someone else is gonna still supplant you exactly that sucks so much like it's crazy because you're you know you you get to a point oh lugal legazy that's <laughs> oh, a great name of course you didn't just make that up on the spot <laughs> yeah, i know <laughs> well yeah lugal in ancient sumerian means king Oh. Fun fact of the day. Oh, yeah. There you, there you go, weirdos. Fun there you fact go. of the day. Now you can say you know at least one word in ancient Sumerian. Yes. History of Weirdos podcast, you're welcome. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, Lugal, like, AZ being supplanted by Sargon the Great. Okay, anyways, I'm done. I'm done with examples like that. Just know that this is just, it's, it's just a crazy time. It's a, and what, what are the odds that someone would be able to, like you said, um, eclipse her right and 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 guys just to to give you like to give you an idea of how great like everyone thought aurelian was Mm -hmm. um his title given to him by the roman senate so not to himself by the roman senate was restitutor orbis Mm -hmm. meaning restorer of the world wow so i mean you know they had a high opinion of him yes he was mr popular yes so in 270 and 271, Zenobia was minting coins with her son and Aurelian. Okay. So uh, her son on one side, Aurelian on the other. Okay. Deferring to Aurelian as the senior leader. However, that eventually stopped. And in late 271, coins were minted with her son being hailed as Augustus Uh-oh. or emperor. That's basically just going into full-blown revolt. Yeah. Like that's saying, oh yeah, like... At best, for Aurelian, it's like, oh, her son is on equal footing, which is, for someone like Aurelian, that's like, that's a big no-no. Yeah. So this was the beginning of the end for Zenobia. Aurelian marched through Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and fought a series of battles against Zenobia's forces. Zenobia, meanwhile, marched all of her troops from, from Egypt all the way, you know, north to northern Syria, the heartland of Palmyra, because if Palmyra falls, everything falls. Right, Or Syria right. falls, everything falls. Aurelian fought an army led by Zabdus, who had previously been undefeated at this point. Zabdus' army, however, was routed at the Battle of Emei in May of 272. Mm-hmm. He fought a 70,000... Or, sorry, he as an Aurelian, later fought a 70,000-strong army led by Zenobia herself at the Battle of Emesa, either in the same month or in the next month in June. They nearly even routed the Romans at this point, but were ultimately unsuccessful. Wow, that's insane. And they they the Roman army around this time had only about 50,000, I'd say. And Zenobia's had 70? Yes. 
I mean, it also just goes to show that, I mean, Aurelian was probably one of the most brilliant and underrated military leaders of, like, that kind of, that, that all of probably classical and late antiquity. Mm-hmm. I guess he's more late antiquity, but still. Um, Zenobia, after the battle, fled to the capital, their, her capital city of Palmyra, and, and for a short time waited out a siege by the Roman army. Mm-hmm. She eventually decided to flee under the cover of darkness towards Persia, her former hated enemy. What? Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's like, what else, what has she got to lose? However, Aurelian learned of this plan, and a contingent of his army eventually caught up with her before she could cross the Euphrates into Persian territory. She must have been really scared to be caught. Yeah, I think so. At this point, there are like a half dozen different stories um, as to what happened to her. The most likely, though, is that she probably had to endure some sort of series of humiliations, including dressing her up as a camel. What? Yeah, I guess that was a... That's a big diss back in the day. To be a camel? To be a camel. I don't so know, I, man. Camels are pretty cool. This woman was a queen. Now she has to dress up as a camel. That's such a yeah. weird punishment, but okay. I mean, I literally put in my notes, I don't know, guys. The ancient world was weird. Yes. We did know that she was almost certainly present at Aurelian's triumph in Rome around 274 and was paraded about. Oh. After this point, though, nothing is known for certain. Some accounts say she was just beheaded. But others say she lived on in obscurity. The Historia Augusta, and remember, take this with a grain of salt, says that Aurelian actually gave her a villa near Hadrian's villa in present-day Tivoli, Italy, where she lived out the rest of her days. Hmm. In fact, according to this account, her house would eventually become a tourist attraction for Romans. And mm. I do like this account, to be honest. That's my favorite one. I mean, after enduring so much like humiliation, you know, being someone who was so incredible, an amazing ruler, and then to be subjugated to humiliation, you'd hope that she at least got a really nice villa somewhere. Right. And it's like next to Hadrian's villa. So it's yes. like beautiful little area. Yeah. But mm, she was probably beheaded, babe. Yeah, no, I, I just, I, I like refuse to believe it. I refuse. But on the other hand, she does seem to be, just like I said, extremely magnetic and smart and strategic. I'd imagine charming mm-hmm. for so many men of her time to rally around her. Maybe she did talk her way into a villa. It's yeah, it's very, it's, tr- it's very possible. I like to think that she did. And I didn't put this in my notes because it's not really directly related to Zenobia, but eventually, so Palmyra was spared the f- during her rebellion. Okay. However, they revolted again. Oof. And then Aurelian destroyed the city. <gasps> and it never really got back to prominence ever mm-hmm. again. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Um, and I, I, and a lot of it was like in remembrance of Zenobia. Like mm, her. That's were, why they revolted again? Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh, I'm thinking she's dead then. (laughs) (laughs) No! Because then if she were not deceased at that point, he would have removed her from this planet. Is a nice way to say it. Like after, right? Because maybe they still had hope. Right. Or that's why they rebelled again. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting though. After everything to be like, to be spared and to be like, phew, okay. Right. We survived that one to still try to fight against them. I know. It, it's crazy. That's fascinating. Her legacy is very divided. And I, I find mm. that actually really fascinating. So in some context, 
she's seen as like a feminist icon, a national hero, and a woman of the people. Mm -hmm. Whereas other valuations of her are far more critical, calling her a power-hungry warmonger. Mm, so calling her a man. <laughs> <laughs> so, and again, like according to few sources, she was very attracted, just adding to the overall mysticism and romantic outlook of Zenobia. Yes, she's quite a romantic figure. Yeah, and mm -hmm. again, if it wasn't for Aurelian, like who was just absolutely magnetic and just an icon in his own right, mm -hmm. you know, her, she would probably be, her story would be probably very different mm -hmm. than what ha actually happened. So let me, that, Matt, let me ask you a question. Yes, please. What do you think of her legacy? I think she's a badass. You think she's a badass? That's really amazing. I think I'm just confused, though, as to why with things going so well for her, even with Aurelian on the scene, why she would do the thing of printing her, minting the coins with her son. Yeah, see, that's it. I don't know. That, that, I think it was really dumb. Yeah, like, that they does seem dumb. She should have just, maybe, like, she just didn't understand how competent Aurelian would be. Because she did mm. see a bunch of Roman emperors kind of, like, come and go very quickly. One of those Roman emperors, her, um, it was before Odenathus died, he fought against Persia and not, and was it was humiliating for him because he was captured by the Persians. Oof. So, and Oof. he had to live out the rest of his life as a prisoner. Oh, so she saw, you're right, it was like a time of crisis, it was very tumultuous, she's like, this dude, maybe she was thinking, this dude's not going to last. Right, and, you know, she probably thought that, you know, Rome was just going to absolutely disintegrate, mm -hmm. right, and like, it wouldn't last, and, well, you know, if it wasn't for, you know, just some extraordinary people, it probably would have. That's fascinating. Yeah, and, you know, weirdos, I want to know, what do you guys think of her legacy? Is she like a national hero icon or is she a warmonger let us know yeah a warmonger or a warmonger i mean to, here's what i think I, i'll tell you what i think oh yeah i don't please. think she's a warmonger i think she was she's very um right for her time i think you mm. know i mean look we even look back at like people like genghis khan who was absolutely like a like a genocidal warmonger yes and like she and he never has like a a, a really negative opinion about him no. unless unless you really understand history right but like the broad strokes is like wow like amazing like big conqueror. figure conqueror. yeah and it's like dude like because of him I, I, god knows how many people died mm -hmm. but like one of the, the biggest mass murders in all of history mm -hmm. but anyways um i don't th yeah i don't think she's a warmonger i think she's pretty dope um but again aurelian's also my favorite emperor so it's kind of just like a weird like standoff where i'm like i really admire both of you guys that's so interesting yeah so you think she she's seen unfairly critically in some I think cases so. okay yeah i think overall i actually have a pretty high opinion of her Mm-hmm. i mean i'm floored that she was able to do all of this yeah again she did a lot in such a short amount of time and, and especially, like, obviously very smart and everything like that and, and well-educated, but women, I'd imagine, weren't educated or socialized to take those types of military positions of power like a lot of young men were, right? They're expected right. to have good military knowledge, even um, lower-class people, right? Because all the men went into the military in some way, shape, or form. Exactly. But she, this is incredible to me that she like led an army of 70,000 and almost beat Aurelian. Yeah. It's, 
That's so impressive. It's incredibly impressive. Mm. Well, weirdos, that's all. I you know, let us know what you guys think of her legacy. In the meantime, I'll give you my sources. We have the Historia Augusta. A very reliable very source. Very reliable. Use it on your thesis. Yeah, definitely every <laughs> single word of it is 100% correct. Uh-huh. I also used ThoughtCo, Encyclopedia Britannica, Nat Geo, WorldHistory.org, the New World Cyclopedia, and of course, our favorite, Wikipedia. Awesome, babe. I really loved that. That was so interesting. These were, this is like a really fascinating chunk of history that I've never heard of. And I'm so surprised there's not like a movie or something. I know. There really should be more media about her. I'm, I'm very shocked that there isn't. I mean, to be honest, this entire period, I mean, this is like really like the time where, you know, classical antiquity ends and late antiquity begins. Mm-hmm. Like there's not really so much a, a specific year. It's more of just like a phasing in and out. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah. And it's just a really transformative time in like for the Mediterranean Mm. and Mesopotamia, Iran, even like the Parthian empire falls and the Sassanid empire replaces it. It's, it's a whole, it's a big thing. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on guys. All right. Well, anyways, enough (laughs) of my rambling. I love you guys and we'll see you next time for our 50th anniversary. (laughs) I said that on purpose that time. Oh my god. I said that on purpose that time. Our 50th episode, guys. Goodbye, weirdos. Adios.